beginning of this COVID epidemic, we were concerned about whether we'd ever get a vaccine or even a, a drug that might be able to treat COVID. We do have vaccines now, but one of the major issues that's facing us are the development of various variants of the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2. And we're joined today by Dr. Catherine Stevenson, who's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a vaccine scientist. Welcome, Dr. Stevenson. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me today. Well, could you just outline a little bit about the, what these variants are? Because they've been recently renamed and, and, uh, and, and how do they come about? Well, one thing to kind of start off with is just to remember about viruses. So all viruses mutate. It's uh, part of what they do. It's just evolution. So they're constantly changing one amino acid or another, um, hoping to hit on something that provides an advantage for them. Um, and as viruses, you know, what can provide an advantage? So one could be if it makes the virus easier to transmit. Um, and other advantages might be if it uh, makes you cough more and more symptomatic, um, which contributes to uh, transmission. So these are the, all the different mutations that occur. And uh, for SARS-CoV-2, I don't, you know, no one knew in the beginning of this how much or at what rate it was going to mutate. And that, that's really become a lot clearer, I think, in the last year. And it was actually pretty quiet. Um, globally for about, I don't know, 10 or 11 months, we didn't see a lot of mutations. But, you know, once the whole world had uh, gotten a taste of SARS-CoV-2 and there was a more immunity out there, then we started to see that shift. Um, and that's when we started to see more of these variants that we now consider variants of concern. Yeah. And could you just go through how we're naming these different variants? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, how do we identify them? A lot of times we identify them because some virus is collected somewhere and then sequenced. And so we have a habit of naming these things in, at first based on, you know, where it was located. So we've we heard all those names in the beginning, you know, the UK variant, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, these viruses don't have a home. They spread everywhere. And uh, eventually they got real technical names. B, you know, 117, B351, all of those names were, were very technical. The World Health Organization has now made things simpler for us and also given us a way to not refer to them by their uh, original region where they were identified. Um, and now they have these names like Alpha, Beta, um, Gamma, and Delta, and, and many more. So we, we have these variants and they're circulating around and we've got a, a, we're starting to get a large population uh, um, of the world being vaccinated. What do we know about the ability of vaccines to, say, prevent these from being transmitted? Well, to be honest, we don't know a tremendous amount to begin with about vaccine efficacy against transmission. We know a lot about these different vaccines and their ability to prevent symptomatic COVID-19, whether that be mild or moderate symptoms or even severe critical illness. You know, that's been measured a lot. Um, what we don't know as well is whether these vaccines, any of them, and against any strain, uh, prevent all infections, including asymptomatic infections. We're getting more data on that. 
But where there isn't a lot of data at all is whether or not a vaccine can prevent transmission from one person to another among the people who do get vaccine, uh, who have what we call a breakthrough infection um, following vaccination. So I, that's the first thing to say is that even against the original strains that we were dealing with six months ago, we, we don't have a ton of data about vaccine protection against transmission. Um, but what do we know about the vaccine protection in general against these new variants? Um, we are really kind of learning this in real world scenarios. So, you know, you don't have a randomized controlled trial with, you know, the vaccine against one variant versus, you know, a different one. It doesn't work like that. So we have to collect all this data in a, almost in an observational fashion. But I have to say the data looks pretty good, actually, um, where the vaccines, I mean, this is a big generalization, but it looks like the vaccines, pretty much all the types and all the variants still is maintaining at least partial efficacy and definitely efficacy against severe disease. So we've been told in the UK where we have a lot of the Delta variant that the people who have been hospitalized are those who are unvaccinated or those who have had just one dose of vaccine. So we, we, would, but we were told that one dose of vaccine at the beginning was pretty good at protecting us. So do you think there's, a, there's something there about the variant maybe being a little bit more uh, pathogenic or, or avoiding some of the antibody responses that we'd get from, the, from our first vaccination? I think as scientists, we're, we're still trying to figure out how these variants may evade immune responses. And some of these variations and mutations that have occurred, we've mapped them down to see that they really do affect the ability of, of an antibody, say, to, to bind to the virus. So that's the mechanism by which these, these variations can get away from our antibodies. But what we don't know is whether that means we need to create a completely different antibody or whether we can just have, if we had more and more and more and more higher amounts of that antibody, if we could overcome that. And that is an important distinction because with a vaccine, with one kind of vaccine, you could imagine giving bigger doses or multiple times of that vaccine and getting high enough levels of antibody to overcome whatever resistance is there. That's a different animal than trying to say, well, we need to change the vaccine completely so we can make a completely different antibody. So personally, I feel like the reason why two doses works better than one dose is probably because the antibody levels are not are higher after two doses. Not so much that they necessarily change in quality or mechanism of, of inhibition, but probably just because they're higher. And and therefore, uh, um, can I just ask you about this concept now of mixing vaccines for, and especially when variants are, are concerned, uh, will we see the same? height of increase in, 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 in antibodies if we mix a, uh, a vector virus with an mRNA or a protein uh, virus vaccine, right? So, so you, you actually have different ones. Would that be worse or better than, you might not be able to answer this, but I just want your opinion, uh, than giving the same vaccine twice? Yeah, well, of course, we don't really know with these vaccines, but I can tell you my speculation, which would be that it would be uh, mixing and matching would, would be great. Um, 
and would boost responses. <clears throat> it's kind of a tried and true method um, in the field of vaccinology, which is a field, um, to do something called prime and boost. So prime is where you give the first shot of whatever vaccine you've got. Um, it kind of introduces the immune system and uh, you know to this antigen or viral protein of interest, and then you boost it. And you can boost it with the same exact vaccine, which we see many times in all our, our childhood vaccine series often have that. But we've done a lot of studies in our group here at Beth Israel um, in the U.S. looking at mixing and matching for HIV vaccines. And we have found that mixing and matching generally boosts better than just repeated doses of the same vaccine. So why would that be? Um, one reason could be something technical, like these adenovirus vectors, if you keep giving them over and over and over again, maybe you develop some immunity to that vaccine itself. Um, but personally, I think it has a lot more to do with how, how we're showing uh, these proteins to the immune system. And if you imagine, you know, this sort of typical metaphor, you're, you're showing a picture of the criminal, right? Um, one photograph of the criminal to the body. Um, Imagine if you could show them 50 pictures of the criminal or even a 3D rendering of the criminal where so that each time you give a different type of vaccine, you know, it's it's showing this picture in a slightly different way. So I personally feel like boosting is kind of always going to be better because you're when you're mixing and matching because you're giving the immune system a chance to see different elements of the virus and maybe elicit a more comprehensive immune response. Uh, and I know there are studies ongoing and some are starting to report out, but I don't think we've got any data on there on the efficacy of mixing and matching yet, do we? I don't think so. You know, I was just looking at this. There's a paper, kind of a real world paper, looking at mixing and matching for AstraZeneca and Pfizer. Um, and I think they have some data that, you know, actual data that shows that good boosting occurs, um, that you give a dose of Pfizer and it, it boosts up the original response from AstraZeneca, which is really would be shocking if it didn't, honestly. So that's good. At least it's showing what we expect to see. So a good proof of concept so far. But I, I was really interested about this mixing and matching because people, are, um, the individuals are very wedded to which vaccine they had. Yeah. I mean, the first question people say, have you been vaccinated? Yeah. Then the second question is, which one did you get? Right. So mm -hmm. um, I think it'd be very interesting to try and convince the public uh, to mix and match. And obviously, in some places in the world, mix and matching will have to happen because of uh, a vaccine availability. So yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, in the next round of studies that we'll probably see, we'll try to tease out whether there's um, an advantage of doing, you know, a particular combination or an order of the combination. Um, but, you know, that's fancy. I feel like that's too fancy for a pandemic. Um, probably just mix and match with whatever you got is going to end up being the way to go and, and hopefully will be effective no matter how you mix them. Um, I just wanted to touch back a little bit on two doses of vaccine. Now, there is there's a, a vaccine we have where a single dose could be given. Uh, most of the others are two dose vaccine. But with the variance uh, and, and it may, if it is about antibody responses, should we not think about giving three doses, even if they're mixed and matched? Yeah, I mean, if we can show that it's really the 
quantity of antibodies that you have, not necessarily the exact, you know, way that it binds to the virus, but just how much you have, then it makes sense that you could probably just boost and boost and boost away, (laughs) you know, keep giving these shots, keeping your antibody tighter, as we say, the level of antibodies above a certain threshold. And, um, you know, there's some talk about saying maybe we don't need any new types of vaccines. Maybe we don't have to invent a, a Delta variant vaccine. Maybe we could just use our current vaccines, but just give them more often. So we might see some studies that are going to look at that strategy. Um, you know, in the studies that were published and there, you know, after one dose, you do see protection. That was true for Moderna, true for Pfizer. Um that's true. So it's not like first doses are no better than nothing. They're, they're definitely better than nothing. Um, you know, they probably get you about halfway to your, to what you could get, but two doses for the mRNAs look better than one. Um, for Janssen, you know, it's a one dose shot as, as, uh, was done in the efficacy trial, but they have been looking at two doses since the beginning. And in the whole HIV vaccine program, it's, it's actually up to four doses of, the vaccine. So we may yet see data with two doses. And honestly, like, why wouldn't two doses be better than one? So I think we may even see for Janssen um, some some boosting strategies uh, using that vaccine. And now I just want to touch on the thorny issue of people who have had COVID before, and then uh, they get vaccinated with one vaccine, and it looks like their responses are, are similar to people who've had two vaccinations. Um, they then get a third vaccine. So will we have a model, uh, I mean, a, a second vaccine, which is like having three immune boosts, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, do you think that they're worth studying those people to, to look at their, the, the protection against the variants? Because if, if it is about the levels of antibody, surely after two vaccines and COVID, your levels are going to be pretty yeah. sky high. Yeah. You, you see these real worlds data where you're, you're looking at, um, you're starting where you're, you're looking at all of the infections that are occurring and then you backtrack and see who's been vaccinated and with what or whether they have not been vaccinated at all. And it does look like prior infection all by itself is pr- pretty protective. Um, now, whether that's going to be true against a virus, whether that's true against the new variants, I think will come from the observational data. The hard part is it's really kind of a public health decision. So if you didn't have a situation of scarcity, then you would just give everybody two doses, um, even if they'd had COVID before or not, because why not? It would just get everybody's antibodies up even higher. So it's really a question of scarcity and the use of resources. And if you take a place like India, for example, having this horrendous outbreak, very little vaccine, it, it's a policy decision, but it wouldn't be unreasonable to say, okay, we're going to give just one dose um, to those who've been previously infected and save that second dose for someone else. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. Uh, it, I've heard that in some places the policy is if you've had proven COVID before, then you're given one vaccine dose uh, and you're then deprioritized for a second before everybody else gets their, mm-hmm. their doses. Yeah. I mean, all of this is going to get easier once we know the so-called correlate of protection, meaning what is the threshold of an immune response 
that is a marker of immunity so that you could just go to your doctor, get a test. The test says you're immune and you'd be done. Right. So like you could go in and maybe you had a very, the problem is like with previous infection, not everybody gets high antibodies. Some people have very mild infection, maybe even asymptomatic. They don't develop very high antibodies. So just the history of prior infection is not always the most helpful thing. So what would be better is if you could go get a test, it says, well, your antibody titers are sky high. You know, you could get one shot with a vaccine and you'll be all set. So that is going to, you know, one of the questions I feel right now that is most kind of, you know, overdue data that I think is should have been out by now is what are the correlates of immunity? What are we looking for that will tell us that a person is immune or not immune? Yeah, I mean, uh, and especially because people are wondering uh, whether how much T cell uh, cellular immunity counts for this as well as antibody levels. Yeah, I was very careful to say uh, immune responses as a correlate because it may not just be an antibody level. I mean, I, I, I'm sure if you have a neutralizing antibody titer that's off the charts, you know, that's going to be great. You're going to be protected. But in the mid-level, um, you know, your cellular immune system is going to be playing a big part, probably the more significant part in terms of preventing progression to severe disease. And we don't have a correlate for that either. Now, I want to put you a little bit on the spot about um, the transmittability. If we could reduce transmissibility for these variants, then, you know, uh, obviously, because there's still a large pool of people who are unvaccinated or maybe just had one vaccine and not got antibodies enough. But we've seen data that's come out to suggest that some vaccines don't prevent transmittability uh, as well as others. You know, you see 95%, then you see 51%. Then you see, so if that's the case, shouldn't we, where these variants are, are strong and they're, and they're circulating, shouldn't we say that the vaccines that have really proven to have much better um, a degree of, of lowering transmittability should be used in those geographic areas. I know they all prevent probably prevention and death and getting into hospital. Mm -hmm. But if you really want to cut down transmission, shouldn't the world be prioritizing, hey, you know, look at the UK, it's got all this delta, we need to put this, you need to use this vaccine because it mm -hmm. helps prevent transmittability rather than that one, which doesn't prevent transmittability as well. Well, if you don't mind, can I turn the, this question around at you? Because I'm interested in what data you've seen that shows that one vaccine is better than another at preventing transmission. Well, the only the only data that I've seen where, where you get 91%, 95%, which is similar. And then the, the, some of the Chinese vaccines said um, 50 something percent. And then Novavax in South Africa was 60 something percent. So you just look at this and go, hang on. <laughs> uh, mm. Shouldn't they be using the X brand of vaccine in this country because it seemed to have better data on uh, reducing transmittability. Okay, so I, I am going to infer that when you're talking about data about reducing transmittability, that what we're really talking about is data on whether or not vaccines prevent asymptomatic infection. So why do I say that? Because I, I know the Novavax data um, a little bit. So if if you block all infections, including asymptomatic infections, 
then you are by definition blocking transmission because if you don't get infected, you can't transmit it to someone else. So looking at all the efficacy against all infections, including asymptomatic infection, yes, the vaccines do have different data on that. Um, and we don't know all of the data yet, but probably the mRNAs you know, are, are stronger against blocking all of the infections. It's hard to compare these data from one place to another because they were all done in different settings um, and against the different variants. So it's really hard to say, but I agree with you in principle um, on the logic piece of this, which is that if there is a vaccine that is, say you have one vaccine, vaccine A, and it is 100% effective against severe disease, 100% um, effective even against mild disease, um, but for whatever reason is, is like 20% effective against asymptomatic infection versus a vaccine B that is uh, not so great against protecting against fully moderate, like moderate to severe, but has a stronger protection against asymptomatic, then perhaps vaccine B is the one you want to put into uh, a highly, highly transmission, uh, transmittable virus situation. I think uh, it's going to be really hard uh, to pick and choose between vaccines because ultimately in the end, it's about access and equity and about price that is really going to drive decisions about where, what vaccine, like for, for example, in India is going to be used. So say 6172, the Delta variant, say it's 150% more transmissible, like God forbid. Um, you know, whatever vaccine they get isn't going to be determined by that. It's going to be determined about by the price. Yeah, I mean, that's a very sobering thought. And it's absolutely true. And uh, and I, I think that what most of us are, are thinking about now is that if people don't get sick, uh, sick enough to get side effects or complications or go to hospital, and it prevents death and any vaccine that's around uh, that's available, then it should be given. Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, we're, I'm running a study right now in the U.S., which is looking at whether or not Moderna vaccine blocks transmission from, from one person to another. It's a study that's being done in, in 18 to 29-year-olds in the U.S. And the whole purpose of this study is really to address this question to say, what is the benefit of vaccination in a cohort of people for whom the individual benefit is not enormous, right? Because the, the rate of severe disease is very low. So how do you get, what's the value in even vaccinating that cohort of people? Now, our hypothesis is that the value is very, very high because if you can vaccinate 18 to 29 year olds where the bulk of transmission is occurring, then you're gonna have a net benefit all around. Um, so this is something we're trying to provide, you know, really good data on that because we, if you go and talk to people it is convincing for them if they say, listen, I wasn't going to get vaccinated because I feel like I'm a pretty strong dude. Like, I'm not going to get that sick. But once I saw that it would actually protect, you know, everyone around me, including my sister who's on chemotherapy. Well, OK, that that actually changed my mind. Um, so this question about protection against transmission is very, very important um, in terms of setting policy for younger cohorts of people who may not be as at risk for severe disease. 
Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Catherine Stevenson, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Vaccine Scientist. I wish you well with your research and uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future when I'm sure things will have changed. And this has been uh, Anton Posniak talking about science and society, all things COVID-19. Goodbye. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Make sure to check out the notes for any references during the podcast. You can learn more about virology education and our other programs at www.academicmedicaleducation.com. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.